0: I decided, which is not unusual for me, to preach on all three of the readings. Uh, one or two of them we don't hear very often. And I thought it would be important to do that. There are three themes that appear in these readings uh, that are noteworthy. One is, what is the nature of the bond of love between God and God's people and the importance of love between each other in the whole range that we can describe that as human beings. The second is uh, how do we understand the importance of relationship between our personal, internal, physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental states and how we live with one another? And the last one is what's the difference between tradition with a capital T, and traditionalism. And why is that important? So I'm going to say some things uh, about that. The first reading is from the Song of Solomon. Uh, It is often referred to, certainly in the Roman Catholic Church and in other places, as the Song of Songs or the Canticle of Canticles. In the Middle Ages... Uh, Thomas Aquinas, for example, the, most, uh, the thing he quoted the most in his theological writings was the Bible. And the second thing was from the Song of Songs. He quoted that biblical book more than any of the others. St. Bernard of Clairvaux also preached a series on the Canticle of Canticles. So it was important uh, in terms of how they understood the nature of God's love. When I was in seminary, my Old Testament professor, Joseph Hunt, Joseph Hunt had been a Benedictine monk for 30 years, and he left the Roman Church and became an Episcopal priest. But he was John XXIII's Old Testament paritus during the Second Vatican Council, which means the authority, you know, the guy you consult about all this. He knew 20 languages, most of them the ancient ones. So he would say, maybe some of you are wondering why the Song of Songs has got into the Bible. seems like the writing is somewhat erotic and uh, what would be the meaning of all of this? So, here's a commercial message for uh, reading the Bible and particularly the right kind of Bible, I hate to say it that way, and that is that you ought to possess at least one annotated version of the Bible. And the one that I read and that many people in the Episcopal Church read is the Oxford Annotated Bible, and in this case the version that we read in church is the New Revised Standard Version. If you want to get an Oxford annotated Bible that is the revised standard version, that's fine. Or if you want to read another version, that's fine. But the NRSV is the one we read. And in every biblical book, there's an introduction where they describe the book, where it came from, when they think it was written, what are some of the interpretive issues that are in the book, how have people, Christian people and Jewish people, thought about this book, over time, right? So the Song of Songs may have parts of it that date from 1000 BC and maybe more recently, say, into the 200s. So figuring that dating is part of the scholarly task. But still the question is, why is it in the Bible and why do we call it the Song of Solomon? So here's a direct quote from the introduction to the NRSV On the Song of Solomon. The traditional attribution of the book to Solomon probably derives from references to Solomon in the poem and his reputation as the composer of songs and the owner of a large harem. When Nancy and I were married 31 years ago, a part of this, what you heard today, was on our wedding invitation. My wife is a graphic designer and she knows a lot of people who, one, when uh, the computers came in and printing went out, you know, have like linotype machines they got virtually for nothing from the Chronicle building in their living room. So they printed with hot type... This invitation, and you know, type, there's a certain aesthetic to that because the type presses into the paper when it's good paper and you get a texture to the the letters when they impress themselves. So um, when you hear somebody who's sort of a, a certain vintage saying, X had a powerful impress on me, I always think about type and printing in that sense. So in the Jewish tradition, this book has been interpreted as a statement about the intensity of God's love for Israel, God's loving care, and in the Christian tradition, it is is interpreted as uh, a book about the, the relationship of love between Christ and his church. And more contemporary interpreters have expanded this and said, we're not merely talking about these kind of grand theological themes, but we're talking about the nature and the variety of love between one another as human beings. And what does it mean for us? This reading is one of the choices a person can make uh, from our wedding liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer. You can read this as one of the readings in the liturgy. So it's a reflection in some ways, not just of the erotic component of how we understand love. You know, the Greeks were a little bit more thorough than we are because they had four or five words for love and we have one, love. Right? In the New Testament, the type of love That is referred to, agape, is the love that is loved without regard for the loveliness of the object towards which that love is directed. Or the simpler way to say that is love that is loved without the desire or need for the payback. It is selfless. By the way, the erotic component of love in in Greek thought and in the Hebrew Bible has to do also with the yearning for God, the union with God. It's a much more complex word than many people think. So it's important uh, to know that. So we believe that what we read here has something to do about the intensity and the steadfastness of God's love for each one of us. And by virtue of that, we're called to be able to extend that and express this to one another in a variety of forms. And that's important, I think, when we think about uh, how we understand the manifestation of love. Martin Luther did not like the epistle of James. In fact, I think if he, he would say if he were king for a day, he would throw it out of the canon of the New Testament. Why? Because it appears to refute or dilute his absolute belief that we are saved by our faith alone and not by our works. And James is saying, if you have faith, show me your works. And today we have a statement that says something about if you talk the talk, you should walk the walk, right? You should get into action. And then he begins to speak of the internal states that all human beings have. If anyone has love and does not bridle their tongue... Perish life. Right? Gossip. You know, it is so hard to be a, a prig about this because gossiping is such fun, isn't it? But it can be wicked. And it's important that we understand that the way in which we do this, one of the ways to think about it is what I was taught in the old-fashioned spiritual life in seminary. This is not... We don't use this language much anymore, but all of us were going to be priests, and Dean Parsons, you know, schooled us in this old religion, you know, and he referred to as custody of the tongue. In other places... It has been referred to as custody of tongue and pen. And nowadays, we need to exercise custody over tongue, pen, and email, or text, or tweet. A lot of twits tweet, that's why it's difficult. Right? But you need to exercise some custody before you flame out on... In your email or in a text or in a tweet or, I don't know, something else, Instagram, whatever else is out there now. We need to be careful about those because once it's out, it's out. You can't take it back. And that was true even before computers, wasn't it? We need to be. Now, does this mean that all of us should refrain from speaking the truth to power or from expressing? our our, uh, mind about things that are important. No, it doesn't. But it does mean that we need to exercise some understanding that when you point your finger at somebody, three are pointing back at you. So it's important to understand that and to see. And James is saying something about how we need to do this And he's talking about issues that have to do with the commonplace activities of our own lives, not just the great and grand themes of Christian faith in life or social justice or any of these kinds of things. It has to do with how we relate to one another in a godly fashion. Now, there are lists here. He, I'm going to talk about another list in the gospel in a minute. talks about taking care of orphans and widows and refra- refraining from these things. He didn't invent this list. There are a bunch of lists out there in the New Testament. And if you ask yourself, what, no fornication, no adultery, no uh, doing this, no doing that, I love today, folly is <laughs> in the gospel. No folly. Where do you think they came from? So I'll say something about that in a minute when I get to the gospel. They're not specifically Christian. They have to do with the way human beings are supposed to relate to one another. And what they're supposed to do as they live. And And the importance of the moral choices they make. Remember I said to you, this is a bit of a digression a few weeks ago in a sermon about Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree on Religion and Politics. And most, if not all of us, make our moral decisions because of our interior intuition. Like the mahout on the elephant. He is guiding the elephant. The mahout is reason. And the elephant is our intuition and our emotions. So he's moving through with the elephant in the forest of logging or whatever it is. And he's driving this elephant. But if the elephant wants to go over there, he goes. Right? Because the mahout's a, a, a person and the elephant is bigger and heavier and stronger And that's true with our emotions, the way in which we do these things and the decisions we make. David Hume, I just thought about this when I came to church, so I wrote it down. David Hume, the great Scottish philosopher of the 18th century, who's somewhat discredited these days and not without reason, but he said at one point in his writings Reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. So when we think about our interior states, what is their source? They cannot be reason is something out here. They're connected to this interior state that we have, our intuitions. And in study, you can go to the website and fill out one of his Questionnaires, if you want, about moral choice. We make these decisions based on our intuition. And most of the people, when they're asked the question, they answer instantly. Is this a moral offense or not? You know, what... So when they're pushed back, they then then reason why what they have just said is the correct answer. See? All of us do that. So it's important to understand these processes that our reason and our emotions are one thing. Mother Morrison put in the bulletin this week a quotation from Henry Nouwen, Who's He? Henry Nouwen was a Dutch Roman Catholic priest. He wrote many books on the spiritual life. They're excellent. And this is one of the books, Letters to Mark, about Jesus. The spiritual life has to do with the heart of existence. I find the word heart a good word. I don't mean by it the seat of our feelings as opposed to the seat of our thoughts. By heart, I mean the center of our being, the place where we are most ourselves, where we are most human, where we are most real. In that sense, the heart is the focus of the spiritual life. So if you were to ask some rabbi in the, at the time of the writing of the Song of Songs or after it in the time of Jesus, where is the seat of the, of the reason? The intellect, they would say the heart. The heart is the seat of the intellect and the emotions. They're one thing. So it's important to know this, I think. So here we go to Mark. And we have a controversy. And I need to tell you that uh, we have a little inside baseball here that I'm not going to get into about this gospel. Mark comes from a Hellenistic Jewish tradition. Okay? And Jesus is a Jew... From the Galilee, so the way he thinks about its practice is conditioned by being there. There's a lot. There's a big Greek city right next town next to Jesus in Nazareth called Sepphoris. Grew up. The, he grew up next to it, and uh, the influences on them were what they were. So he's in Jerusalem now and he has a a controversy with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a group who believe that you should always be in a state of ritual purity such that you would be able to walk onto the temple precincts at any time. So the rules, their practices and traditions have to do with maintaining that level of ritual purity. With regard to the food laws, with regard to the washing, with regard to all those things. Jesus comes from a place where they sat a little more lightly on this. So Jesus is talking about a controversy and what he's doing here is his influences are real But what he's talking about is the proximity that needs to exist between the letter and the spirit, right? He's not saying don't practice any of the traditions, but he is saying you need to understand the difference between the rules and the things that we make and what God wants and how he wants in our tradition to be able to reflect our gratitude and thanks, you know, worship is a high value at St. Luke's Church. And I would like to think as the pastor that we do it because we love God, not because of it. we're superstitious and we hope that it's going to benefit us in the future or that it will inure us against bad juju. Right? That we do it for that purpose. Or maybe God will love me even though I'm not worth it, even though I don't deserve it. And our worship is is pure thankfulness. Eucharist means thanksgiving. And it is the acknowledgement that we are unconditionally accepted, loved, and forgiven. And we always need to remember that. Now, What is the difference between tradition, with a capital T, and traditionalism? Yaroslav Pelikan. There may be one guy sitting in this church who knows who he is. But he wrote a four-volume series on the tradition of the church, the Christian tradition. And in one place he said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. (laughs) G.K. Chesterton said, Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small, an arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. <laughs> Sir Thomas More, have you ever more? Have you ever heard of him? You know the man for all seasons. In the Roman Church, he's Saint Thomas More. Now, he said, "Latin isn't holy; it's just old." Right? He's not saying, you know, don't use Latin, or Latin is unimportant. important. He's, not, he's merely saying that if you vest the tradition or parts of the tradition with things that can't support, it's not a good plan. The same thing is true with the way we understand ourselves. One of the things that I'm going to do in Episcopalian 101 is for part of the class, I'm going to talk about what Anglo-Catholic means. This is one of the most misunderstood terms uh, we have in our vocabulary now. What in the world does it mean? You know, people throw this stuff around and they haven't got a clue. Even the clergy. Even the clergy. And sometimes we get so bound up with uh, traditionalism that we forget uh, about the great... Tradition, and what it meant and where it came from and I think that's a worthy thing to hold up uh, to the world you know so I would say that we need to give this week thanks to God for unconditional love for the intensity of the love that God has for us and how we return that The only way you and I have of appropriating that great and powerful truth is through the commonplace activities of our own lives. We have no other way to do it. So I know what it feels like to love somebody. I know what it feels like to be loved. And I know what I feel like when I see two people who look at one another in love. And it is by that process... I gain some insight into this great and powerful truth. Whatever nuevo huevo term you want to attach to it, love is the answer. So think also about the ways in which uh, you relate to other people and express that unconditional love because God has done that for us. Uh, see if there are things in your life where you need to um, not just walk the walk, but talk the talk. See if you, you know, I've had people in my ministry come and see me because they went to Indiana to see their relatives on Christmas and they're upset because the traditions that they do here in California on Christmas were not the same ones they were doing in Indiana and in, in Terre Haute or wherever they were, right? They were all upset about it. This is the thing that makes people sick or crazy. We're not just talking about whether or not you you make the sign of the cross at this particular point. These things influence all kinds of things. And I've told you the story that Mason Williams told on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. It dates me. He was at his grandmother's house and she was cooking a leg of lamb. And he noticed the bone was sticking out of the leg of lamb and he noticed his grandmother cut the sinew on the bone and folded the bone back next to the roast and put it in a pan. And he said, Grandma, why do you do that? And she said, that's, that's what I do always when I prepare a leg of lamb. So he went to his sister's house about two weeks later. She was making a leg of lamb. And she said, he said... And she had the bone, cut the sinew, put it back, put it in the pan. She said, why do you do that? She said, well, your, mo- my, m- your mother always told me that that's what you should do to make a leg of lamb. I had this somewhat backwards. And he went to his grandmother again one day, and she was cooking a leg of lamb. He said, Grandma, why do you do that? Why do you cut? I didn't ask you the last time I saw it. Why do you cut the sinew and fold it back and put it in the pan? She said, oh, well, you know, honey when your grandfather and I were first married, we didn't have a lot of money, and so we didn't have a pan big enough to put the whole leg of lamb in with the bone. Right? The law of the Medes and the Persians. This had become. Right? So maybe we can get over it if somebody doesn't fold the napkins the right way on Christmas. You know, that might be an important thing. You know, that's the nexus of where spiritual growth takes place, you know, on a daily basis. So give thanks to God for the opportunity to do this. Amen.